1 John 3, 19 through the end of the chapter. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us and by the spirit whom he has given us. Thanks. In the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church responded to the Protestant Reformation led by Martin Luther, and they had a council called the Council of Trent. It lasted a number of years, and one of the sessions they had was regarding something called justification. Now, you don't need to worry about that term if you're unfamiliar with it right now, but let me highlight one really important line in this council that they came up with. It's going to be on the screen. It says this, each one, when he considers himself in his own weaknesses and indisposition, may have fear and apprehension concerning his own grace, since no one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. Now, I don't know if you come from a Catholic background, or maybe you grew up in a church that taught similar things here, and some of that language is a little archaic, hundreds of years old, but what essentially is being communicated there is that you cannot know you have the grace of God. You cannot have certainty that you have the grace of God, and I wonder how that lands on you this morning. Perhaps you are hearing that, and you say, yeah, that's right. That's what I was taught. I was taught that growing up. That, yes, God loves you, but you can lose your salvation. You can lose the grace of God. Um, uh, we would, I would hear a passage. One of my favorite preachers said this. He said, yes, the Bible says no one can snatch you out of God's hand. But the Bible doesn't say you can't pry yourself out of God's hands. And I was like, wow, that is so powerful and persuasive. And what that does in a people is produces a consistent state of insecurity and anxiety. Maybe I'm not obeying God enough. Maybe he doesn't love me today. Maybe he loved me yesterday when I didn't miss my Bible time or I didn't look at pornography or I love that person well, but today I don't know if God loves me. Maybe I lost the grace of God. And certainly there are some psychological and manipulative reasons why a pastor or churches would want to teach this kind of doctrine. they can be afraid that if you believe that you are secure in God's grace and love, that that could promote cheap grace. And that, hey, you could take what Paul says in Romans 6 and say, hey, let grace abound. Like, I, I can just do whatever I want. I have a license to sin because God has already forgiven me. I'm good. I can just do whatever I want. I got my fire insurance. I'm good. And it's also a subtle way to encourage giving and a church attendance and serving. If you constantly have the sense that you're just maybe not enough and God won't forgive you, man, that can be a powerful motivator. Or at least it can seem that way. Is this right? Is this what we should do at APC? 
If we see giving is down, attendance is down, child care laborers are down, we just start shaming you and say, hey, maybe God doesn't love you and maybe you're not secure. See, what we're addressing this morning is what is one of the central hearts of the Apostle John in 1 John. It's throughout the whole letter. We're going to hit on it hard, and we're also going to hit on it even harder in 1 John chapter 5, which is maybe the purpose of the whole letter. It's so that his people may know that they are of God, that they may have security that they know him and he knows them. This is the doctrine that some scholars call the assurance, assurance, this idea of confidence, perseverance, that you're actually God's. I have a major burden this morning. Let me just lay it down. There's two major burdens I have this morning. On one hand, there are some of you this morning who do not have security. You're deeply insecure before God, and yet you actually belong to God. You are his. You have been born again. You have been adopted. God is your beloved father, and yet your heart struggles to believe this truth. As a result, you feel doubt and insecurity about your salvation. This is illegitimate insecurity. In other words, you should be secure, but for whatever reason, a lot of reasons, you're not. And in my, in my experience as a pastor, those who battle with this kind of assurance, who, who come to me and say, I'm not sure I'm saved, I'm struggling with my salvation, almost always these people are actually Christians. <laughs> it's the Christian who has a pricked conscience that wonders, am I actually right with God? And yet there are a number of other people who may be here this morning who you have assurance and you shouldn't have it. You ought not to have assurance. You, not, you ought not to have security. This is illegitimate assurance because you're actually not a Christian. You're not born again. You don't see God rightly and his holiness and his goodness. You don't see your own sin rightly. You think you're a pretty good person compared to other per- people and God at some level owes you Your sins are merely mistakes. God understands he's merciful. And on and on, you could kind of expound on this. And if you're in that category, my burden for you this morning is for you to be deeply insecure about your assurance. Because you ought to be. And my hope is that through this word, that insecurity, that newfound insecurity would lead to ultimate security as you find mercy in God. And again, my burden for those of you who feel that insecurity and you shouldn't is that for maybe the first time in many years or ever, you'll feel a rush of deep love and security before the Lord. Our Father in heaven is not a harsh taskmaster, not some sadistic, manipulative person who wants to constantly keep us on our toes to make sure we're not sure and string us along to keep us obeying him. He wants his people to be deeply secure in his love. Deeply secure in his love. Just like I would not want my wife to be insecure about my love and try to manipulate her to produce good acts. But I'm gonna, I, I need to stop because I can keep going on that. So this passage is going to be encouraging for some and discouraging for others. And for all of us, I pray that God would use this to find ultimate encouragement in Christ. So let's get to it. Verse 19, and I just want to remind you, we're going to continue this experiment and practice where we're not having passages on the screen unless they're cross-references. And the reason why we're doing that is because, remember, this is the source. I'm not the source, right? 
And we want to encourage you to know your Bibles well for them to be falling apart because you're in them regularly. So please bring your Bibles. And if you don't have one, please look on with a neighbor. Verse 19, it starts off by saying this, by this we shall know. Whenever you hear the word this, you have to understand what is he talking about, right? If I say, look at this, you'd be like, well, what's the this you're saying? And this by this is repeated over and over again in 1 John. It's usually always connecting to what came before. And what I mean by that is last week, Pastor Daniel talked about one of the evidences, the outworkings of God's love abiding in God's people is that it's going to manifest in tangible, sacrificial love with brothers and sisters in Christ. It happens. It must happen. It always happens when God's love comes and does work in our hearts. So you have to keep that in mind as we move into our passage. So listen to this again, verse 19. By this we shall know, know by this speaking of loving others in church, we shall know that we are of the truth. What does this mean, we are of the truth? If you've been following along in 1 John, John is using multiple different descriptors of the Christian life. So sometimes he says, uh, you are of the light, or you are the children of God. And in this passage, you are of the truth. So this passage, John is going to help us to see evidences if you are of the truth. How do we know we're of the truth? Well, again, according to the passage before, and we're going to see throughout our passage today, is that you are tangibly loving the family like Jesus does. It's one of the reasons why our second value at All People's Church is love is family. And when you love the family, then you can have confidence you're of the truth because only people of the truth love like Jesus. And when this is your pattern, not perfectly, but truly and consistently, it reassures your heart before God. We're going to talk about this more. What John does is he he speaks in loops. He'll touch on something, talk about some other stuff, and then come back to that thing he said. So we're going to kind of do that. So if you're a linear thinking thinker, it's going to be really difficult, but we're trying to be faithful to how John is communicating. So we're going to John. So let's look at this question. What does it mean to have a reassured heart? What does it mean? Do you have a reassured heart? Do I have a reassured heart? Well, let's look at verse 20 to answer that and then understand the different kinds of guilt we can feel. Look at verse 20 with me. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. What we see here with this word whenever is telling us that no matter who you are, you are at times going to feel condemnation from your heart, guilt from your heart. But it's very important to understand the kind of guilt that John is referring to in this section. There are two kinds of guilt that we want to talk about, or condemnation. Number one is legitimate guilt, if you're taking notes. Legitimate guilt. Legitimate guilt would be when you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you when you have violated God's word. This would be maybe a sin of commission, doing something you shouldn't do, like lusting after someone, or being greedy, or a sin of omission when you fail to do what you ought to do, like love your brother or sister when they're in need. You ought to feel bad, right? If you don't, that is a sign your conscience has been seared and warped, and your heart is hard and cold. When you feel bad when you did something wrong, that means your heart is operating correctly. It's a good thing. That's a gift from God so that we don't go off the rails and we're living in his ways. 
You track it with me? That's good. Guilt is good at times in response when we do something wrong. Do not believe the lie that guilt is wrong in every circumstance. Now, there is a time where it is wrong. It's illegitimate guilt. Illegitimate guilt is when you feel guilty and you shouldn't. You're not perfect. We're not talking about perfectionism. But you are, in general, walking the light, having a lifestyle of repentance, and progressively becoming more like Jesus. And yet, despite this, you have a lingering sense of guilt and condemnation, that there's, there's this sense that you're not doing enough, that you're not enough, and maybe the promises are true for everyone else, but they're not for you. In this passage, John is going after you as a loving grandfather in the faith, a loving pastor who knows people well. He's going after this illegitimate guilt, this illegitimate shame and condemnation that some of you carry this morning. He's going after it, and let's go after it together. Well, what does he say here? These believers here are condemning, their hearts are condemning themselves instead of feeling security. But look at the hope we have in this passage. Look at verse 20 again. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. How does this assure our hearts? Well, the NLT, I think, really helps get at this meaning. So let me put up the NLT here. Even if we, can you read this with me? Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings. He knows. How does this assure our hearts, though? Doesn't God knowing everything kind of doom us and strike more fear into our hearts? I mean, if he knows the depths of our sin, and even when we do good things, we can have bad motivations, man, we're doomed. What does this mean? Well, I'm going to get into it again. Remember, we're going to loop back around. That's John does. I'm going to touch on it a little bit. We're going to go into it more. But remember, God pursued us. Remember John, Romans, 4, uh, Romans 5, 8. While we were what? Sinners. Yeah, still sinners. Christ died for us. He knows the full depths of your heart and my heart, and yet he said, I want them still. And he still knows it. He put a ring on it when he knew what we we're going to do, when we were going to fall away. It was all part of, he already saw it, and yet he still loves us. God knowing us to the depths is actually greatly securing. Why? See, because you can feel loved by someone and know in the back of your mind, well, you don't know the fullness of who I am. If you knew the fullness of who I am, you wouldn't love me like you say you love me. Isn't that why we hold back in community or in relationship? If you knew you wouldn't love me, so I'm going to hide. I'm going to cover this up. And yet the great hope for the Christian is that God knows the full depths of your heart even better than you do, and he says, yes, I still want you. That's good. That is good news. That is a security you can have. You should feel deeply insecure if the pastor said, God doesn't know his full heart, our full heart, and he'll get to know us. Because then one day you're like, well, what, what if he turns open that page in my life, in my heart, opens that door of my heart? Then what, are, what is he going to do? No, he already knows those doors and those rooms and those skeletons, and he knows us and loves us still. And yet, the challenge is for Christians, many Christians, many faithful, sincere Christians whom I love and hear, there's a disconnect. They know the Bible teaches this, and yet their hearts don't believe it. Our fallible hearts sometimes disagree with God's infallible word. And thus, we feel condemnation from our hearts. 
when we ought not to. In these moments, we have an opportunity to let our hearts tell us reality or let God tell us reality. Listen, our hearts don't always feel right. In fact, if you have any, if you lived longer than a year or two, you know that your heart can betray you. Your heart can be fickle. Your heart can be wrong. Don't trust Disney. Listen to your heart. Your heart will betray you. We have this belief in our culture called, some, Paul Miller, he calls it feelism. It's one of our great idols. It's one of our great authorities is what we feel is reality. So one of our significant needs in our culture for our discipleship is for our hearts to submit our feelings, to submit to what God says is true about us and not let our hearts tell us what is reality. We're going to get into this again later. So what does it mean to have an assured heart? Well, let me say this real quick, okay? If you do a word study of this word throughout the New Testament, every single time this word assured shows up, it's actually persuade, pathos, be persuaded. And yet, in this occurrence, in one occurrence in Matthew, it says that translators translate assured. Why? If it's always persuade. Here's my attempt to bring it together. The reason why assured is a good translation is this. Our condemning hearts need to be persuaded by God. And when he does that, it grants assurance in our hearts. See, our hearts are constantly warring with God's, interpret, uh, God's idea of what reality is, which is right. And our hearts need to be persuaded by his reality over our little truth reality. Until, and then when we submit to his reality, then our hearts are persuaded and therefore assured that we are of the truth. So what's the result of a assured heart? These, there are two glorious results of an assured heart that I'm going to highlight here. Result number one, confidence before God. Look at verse 21 with me. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now in a second, we're going to see that this confidence is going to manifest in confidence in prayer, but this is also a general sense of confidence before your heavenly father. One scholar calls this confidence the freedom of happy children who have access always to the Father. Another describes it as communion with God, which is free and unrestricted. This is the kind of access we have because of Jesus before the Father. Let's look at the second result of an assured heart. Result number two, confidence in prayer, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, there's a lot here, and if you have studied the Bible, this, is, this promise is repeated several times throughout the Bible. And when I became a new Christian at the age of 15, I uh, memorized one of these passages in Matthew that says something similar, like, whatever you ask, it will be given to you. And I was on the JV basketball team, and uh, they had a weird thing where um, once football season was over, we all had to try out again, uh, and the football players could take our spots. And spoiler alert, a football player took my spot. And I remember sitting in French class, crying, like, out, out loud, okay? Like, I wasn't hiding it very well. And I had my, my pocket Bible. I pulled it out, and I opened up the passage. I was like, God, you promised that whatever I ask will be given to me. Why am I not on, this, on the team? It was 
It was, it was funny. I mean, and I, it wasn't funny for me then. I was devastated. And, but uh, that's how I was thinking. And maybe you've read a passage like this or other passages. And you said, that's a lie. I have asked things and God has not done them. So how do we reconcile this together? Well, often when we read this passage, our sinful or immature hearts cling on to it and ignore all the context. Well, look at verse 22. It says, whatever we, whatever we ask him, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. One scholar, Curtis Vaughn, says it so well. An obedient life is an expression of harmony with God. Therefore, the man whose primary concern is keeping God's commandments and doing the things that please him is not likely to ask for something which is contrary to God's will. There's a lot of passages that qualify this throughout the Bible, but what we see consistently is that those who abide with God, walk with God, know his heart, do what he does, increasingly will ask the things that God would ask. Their hearts align with his heart, and therefore they don't ask for stupid things like we do. And when I say stupid things, I'm not talking about little things. God cares about the little, middle, and the big things in our life. When I'm saying stupid things, I'm talking about sinful things, things that are not good for our souls, that God will regularly say to no to us because he loves us too much to give it to us. It's a process. It's not overnight. Listen, if you are obeying Jesus, you can have confidence when you pray. This doesn't mean that every single thing you pray for is going to be answered the way you want. We all know that. There's tons of scriptures that we can go to if this was the focus of this sermon. But let me just remind you, you can have this confidence when you open your Bible and you pray. Your father loves you, and he wants to give you good gifts, and he wants to bring forth good truths and realities in your life in this world, and you can go to him with confidence. What kind of obedience, though, is he speaking of? He didn't say explicitly. So now we're going to look at verse 23 and 24. John is going to continue to unpack the commandments that he's speaking of. Look at verse 23. The section is called Abiding by Obeying. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Let's just stop there. John shows us that when we obey these commandments, we abide in God. There are two commandments highlighted. And if you get these two commandments, you get a lot of them for free. So it's not just saying these two only, but if you get these two, everything else comes. Number one, believe in Jesus. At this point, if you have been listening along with us as we've been going through 1 John, you may have the impression that the sum total of Christianity, according to John, is just being a loving person. And it doesn't matter what you believe or what what truth you adhere to. As long as you do good things and you love people, you're good with God. And what does John do here? Very clearly, he says explicitly, number one, you must believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. And when you hear the word name, why does he say name? Why doesn't he just say, just believe in Jesus? Remember, name throughout the Bible is representative to the sum total of who that person is. Their character their hearts, what they do, what they will do. 
So when you say you believe in Jesus, listen, if you're in here and you say, I believe in Jesus, you are saying you believe what he says about himself, that he's the only begotten son, the uncreated one, the Lord of all, the only substitutionary sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the whole world. He's the only hope for all nations. He's going to come back and he's going to make all things new. When you say Jesus, you believe in Jesus, that's, that's what you mean, all of who he is. And if you get that and you get his unfathomable love for you, what that does is helps you and empowers you to live out the second commandment he highlights here is number two, love one another just as he commanded us. How did Jesus command us to love? Well, let me highlight chapter 13, 34. Would you read this out loud with me? A new commandment I give to you. This is one of the most insane passages in the Bible. If you don't find that verse absurd, you have no idea what you just read. And if you're like, I I don't know what you mean, look at it again. Love one another as I have loved you. He raises the bar at an infinite level. Jesus does not command us to just be generally or generically loving like the world says love is love and just you can love whoever you want and love in just such a, Flip it way. You can love food just like you love a person. No, love like we have been loved by him. How does Jesus love us? <laughs> Sacrificially. 1 John chapter 3, last week's passage, he lays down his life for us, it says. Jesus loves his enemies at the point of laying down his life for them. Sacrificial, steadfast, absurd kind of love. So the love Jesus is commanding you and I to live out, commanding us is to love brothers and sisters in Christ, not only them, just certainly the world, but the highlight is here, the church, especially when those people are difficult to love, when they wrong you, when you love them with all your heart over and over again, and they don't love you back. You invite them over, but they don't invite you over. You pray for them, they don't pray for you. You forgive them. And they find reasons not to forgive you. Constantly getting punched in the gut as you love and they don't love you the way you want to be loved and the way you ought to be loved. This is the kind of love God calls us. Love when people betray you. Like Jesus loves Peter after he betrays him and he pursues him. What is one of the most common traits of our culture is that when someone doesn't love us the way we want to be, what do we do? We stonewall them, we distance ourselves from them. I ain't time for that. No, I deserve better. Self-love. No. What does Jesus do? I'm going to pursue the very best friend that looked me in the eye and said, I don't even know that man. That's the kind of love we're talking about. And that's the love that Christ has called us to love. Not a fickle love, not a conditional love, but a love without limits, a love without conditions. Do you love the church like that? Is your life characterized by being a deeply loving, forgiving person? even when people aren't like that to you. This is one of the top traits I look for when we are constantly on the look for other pastors at APC. Pastors that I want to pastor me and that I feel comfortable pastoring you. They can talk the big talk. They can know their Bible, have all the degrees. They can teach well. But I don't have confidence they've been transformed by the gospel and know God's love deeply until I've seen them get stuck in the heart and they still love. 
That's why you don't lay hands so quickly. I'm waiting to see how some of you men respond when someone betrays you and wrongs you, mischaracterizes you, slanders you. Do you still love? Do you still press it? Or is it all theoretical? True understanding and comprehending of the gospel compels us to love people even when it hurts and when they hurt us. The only way to love like this is to truly believe in Jesus and all who he is. Receive his deep love and let that overflow in love for others. And if you have a lifestyle of this, not perfectly, I falter, I struggle, I have times when my heart gets cold and I was like, oh, I don't want to talk to that person again. I don't want to get burned again. I don't have another three-hour conversation where they're venting about all the things I've done wrong. And yet, I have those moments. And yet, because the word of God abides in me, God's love abides in me, it compels me, you know, go love again, love again, just as I have loved you. And if that is characteristic of your life, then you can have confidence, assurance that you are of the truth. And if that does not describe you, then you you can't have confidence. You see, that's the flip side of this. We're going to get to it again, but let's look at verse 24. God abides in us in the Spirit. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. And I can't, I don't want to distract from the main point, but let me highlight just a few things. When we have a lifestyle of obedience, namely, no, like believing in Jesus and loving like Jesus, then that means we are abiding in God. So if you're like, what does it mean to abide in God? John uses that word a lot. Well, he uses different descriptors, but here, one of the descriptions of actually abiding is that you, uh, you love, you know Jesus, and you have a lifestyle of loving like Jesus. And the miraculous statement here is not only that God abides in us, but it says that we abide in him. <laughs> we abide in him and he abides in us. That's insane. Mutual abiding. There's a lot there. We'll, we'll keep going. And now we finally get to the final way we can have confidence we are of the truth. It says this, by the, what, what? In verse 24, by the what? Spirits. By the spirits you can have confidence that you are of the truth. Now, there are passages in the Bible like Romans 8, 16 that talks about the Holy Spirit giving us a sense of an internal subjective sense that we are his. I love that. It's so good. It's so good. But I think the context of this passage is speaking that when the Holy Spirit works inside of you, is inside of you, it's going to produce a loving life, an obedient life. Let me highlight one of the most significant Old Testament passages that speak about the new covenant really quickly. Look at Ezekiel 36, 26. Would you read this out loud? And I will give you a new heart. Did you hear that? There's no... There is no wishing here. If the Spirit of God lives in you, it will do this. It will produce obedience, not perfectly, but truly and steadily and consistently and increasingly over time. So back to this main point about assurance in our passage. When the Spirit produces obedience in our lives, this loving life, it gives assurance that we are truly from God. Let me be clear. You are not earning your salvation. You are not. You don't love people to make God love you. 
He already loves you. But rather, the Spirit of God is demonstrating your true salvation with the lifestyle of Christ-like love. Because how can you not love like Christ when the Holy Spirit dwells in you? How? It's not possible. True Christians love like Jesus, period. The Spirit produces that in them. Now, let me come back to what I started this message with. There's two types of people in here. Two types of people I want to highlight, at least, not only do these two. Number one, those who have illegitimate insecurity and those who have illegitimate security. So for those in the first category who just feel like they can't let their sin go, there's a sizable amount of Christians who struggle with illegitimate insecurity, and you're crippled by this reality. You feel like God is always upset with you. You feel deeply insecure about your standing and security with God. And though you live for Jesus, you always have this sense of, well, I theoretically could do more, right? Right? I could do more. You have a nagging sense sense that the promise of God is true for every single person you know, but not for you. But let me remind you that Jesus is your advocate. When your heart and Satan condemns you, Jesus stands for you and speaks a better word over you. He speaks forgiveness and he says, silence, Satan. That one is mine. Yes, they still sin, but I love them and I died for them and I'm, I'm doing work in them. And yet, some of you know this. You heard the sermon on Jesus as an advocate a few months ago and it still hasn't broken through. You still see it in your life. And you, you, you question your salvation. Let me remind you that 1 John guarantees you will have sin. In fact, that if you, don't, if you say you have no sin, you lie. Truth is not in you. So you will have sin. And yet, John highlights just the absurd, beautiful provision Christ has provided for us who do sin. And yet, you're, you, you may be saying, that's still not enough, Sam. Well, let's loop back to verse 20. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 on the screen. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Let me share two quotes with you. One by I. Howard Marshall. He wrote this. For God understands us better than our own hearts know us. And in his omniscience, meaning he knows everything, he knows that our our often weak attempts to obey him, his commands, spring from a true allegiance to him. God is merciful and patient. And let me me share another one, because you may say, well, that's still not enough, Sam. I still doubt. I still doubt. The Puritan John Bunyan wrote an entire book on one verse, John chapter 6, verse 37. And he has this beautiful kind of dialogue between the sinner and the Savior. And let me see if I can do justice. So here's the sinner, the right side. Here's, Here's the Savior. No way, we say cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, Jesus, certainly more than others see, but there are perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the the thing is, it's just not my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free from this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. No, 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 Jesus, the burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. 
It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses are directed, aren't directed towards others. They're against you. That I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugly, but the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. And then Jesus says, John chapter 6, verse 7, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Amen? But maybe you say, that's still not enough, Sam. What if you still feel like you're certain you're not his? You're not of the truth. You're not really sure you have this lifestyle of Christ-like love. This is why living an intimate Church community is so essential. Because if you're always running solo, coming in and out of churches, always attending, doing your thing, coming in and out, and no one actually knows you, knows your struggles, knows your triumphs, knows your heart, knows your background, knows your wrestles, then you are only banking on your own self-assessment of yourself, your own self-counsel, your own understanding of yourself. And you know what? The Bible and all of psychology teaches us that it's inadequate. We're all easily self-deceived and have a wrong perception of ourselves. So let me tell you this. It is so powerful to walk with people over years who know you deeply. And when you have these moments, these dark nights of your soul that come and doubt, throw doubt on your heart and you feel so insecure about God's love for you and your security, and you talk to them and they look at you in your eye and say, you're his. I've seen your life. I know you. And though you struggle and there's still more growth needed, like all of us, you're his. There's something so powerful about that. I hope all of you can get that. You can't get that if you're not intimately involved in community. If you're running solo, you can just speak to yourself in the mirror. That doesn't go well. So I want to encourage you, if you feel stuck Talk to your DNA group this week. Talk to your MC. And if you're not part of a church family and committed where people actually know you, join soon. Like really soon. If you feel stuck, talk to them and let them pray over you to speak against the lies of the evil one and your condemning heart and let your misaligned heart align with heaven's heart towards you. And maybe you're still after all this, and if you do this with people, you're still convinced you're not God, you're, you're doubting, you feel insecure, then let me give you a gentle rebuke. Because some people will say, I know God forgives me, but somehow I can't forgive myself. In that case, you are now saying that your feeling is greater than God. Your heart is greater than God in his word. God has said, you are forgiven. And you say, nope. Jesus, the advocate, is saying, I stand on your behalf. You're acquitted. You say, nope, you don't know, God. God does know. Lacking assurance once you've seen God say this in your word and the community has pressed into it with you truth is not a noble trait. It's not a godly trait to doubt God's word. I'm not saying don't doubt. If you have doubt, be honest with God. He can handle your doubts. But what I'm saying is when that doubt persists, even when God tells you differently, then you need to repent for not trusting his word. You need to stop letting your feelings be the ultimate authority in your life. That if you feel that, then it's still true. No, your feelings can be wrong. Say, hey, 
I still feel this way, but God says this way, so I'm going to walk in that reality and keep telling my feelings. Feelings get in order. Feelings, you're wrong. Feel rightly. You're his. You're loved. You're forgiven. It takes work. It's a process. Sometimes it happens instantaneously by the Spirit, and sometimes it takes time. And let us walk with you. If that's you, repent of that heart that won't believe that he is more for you than you're against yourself. Receive his secure embrace that you are his and you are forgiven. And let me remind you, how is this possible? How is it possible that God can do such a thing? Well, because Jesus was condemned on your behalf. Jesus, the sinless one, was condemned as if he did everything you and I did so that you and I can have forgiveness and acquittal and acceptance and belovedness before him. Run to the gospel this morning, church. Thank him afresh that he was condemned so you no longer have to ever hear a condemning voice from him. Jesus was condemned for you so you can be totally secure and accepted in his embrace. And if you're not sure that you are his and it's not demonstrated by a lifestyle of loving like Jesus, then do not be secure and come pray with me. Come pray with someone today and fling yourself to his mercy and he's glad to give it. Glad to give it. He died for it. Fling yourself to his mercy. So Christian, I want to invite the worship team to come. Christians, you can have confidence and assurance before God that you are of the truth. How? Firstly, because God is greater than your hearts and he knows the depths of you and knows all things. And secondly, because the spirit of God has come inside of you and over time it is demonstrating God's work in you with becoming a deeply loving person increasingly. And so let us just rejoice in that reality. So I want to encourage you to Close your eyes now. And we're going to practice living over this truth. So I'm going to just quote 1 John, and you could get, kind of play something, uh, background music if you would, Liz. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. And I want you to just receive this truth, not from my authority, but from God's holy word, his absolute infallible word over our fallible hearts. Whenever our hearts condemn us, Maybe you feel that condemnation over your heart right now. The shame, the failure. Receive right now the word. God is greater than your heart. Maybe you just say that over yourself. God is greater than my heart. God is greater than my heart. God knows me better than I know myself, and yet he loves me. Just sit in that truth. God knows me, and yet he still loves me. God is greater than my heart. Receive his forgiveness afresh. Remember his promises. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. These promises are not something you just merely put on the kitchen, kitchen fridge, but a promise you take to the bank. God said it. You take it. Take him at his word. Hold him to his word. He's happy to keep it. Receive it. And if you are an unrepented sin, you're holding on to unforgiveness, bitterness, sin that you're not letting go, then you come to him right now. You fling yourself at his mercy. You pour out your heart before him and know that he's a faithful, just God who loves to forgive, loves to receive you. Receive his forgiveness.
Thank you, Father, for these truths. Thank you. Thank you for the security. I pray for every single one in here who struggles with their security before you, that you would drive out those lies, those insecurities with your fatherly, secure, strong voice over them. Hear the words of your heavenly father. You are mine. You are mine. You don't have to be good enough for me. I was already good enough for you. You are forgiven. Receive that security today afresh, church. And let that motivate us to increasingly love like Jesus does.